Hey, welcome everybody. Glad you're here. If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it up to Acts chapter 2. Today is the first Sunday of the year, obviously, and we're going to do a little bit of a vision casting, kind of tell you where we're going. I'm going to put three words in your heart, on your spirit, and in your brain that are going to be our focus for this upcoming year. And, um, and then next week, I'm really, really excited about this. Next week, we're going to start a, a little, probably two or three little part series that we're entitling God Wrote a Book, and we're going to do a, a few sermons, a few messages, a few teachings about the Bible itself. There is an attack going on in the, the culture today, even within the church culture, about the Bible itself and about its authority about its inerrancy, which is a word that means that the Bible is completely true. There are churches that previously have been solid churches, denominations that are starting to question the authority and the inspiration of the Bible, and it's seeping its way into the church. And I want to I take a few Sundays to really increase our faith in the Scriptures because we claim to be people of the Bible, and we believe, in fact, we're pinning everything on the Bible, and the Bible, what it says about who God is, what it says about who Jesus is, and so we believe it's completely true, and if it's not true, then we're all sort of living a, a fallacy here, and it says that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again, and if that's not true, then we're all just playing silly little games and we need to go home, but if it's true, then it means everything, and so I want to increase your faith. I also want to equip us to be able to engage a culture that uh, very much doubts the truth of Christianity, and I also wanted to motivate us to make the Bible a much more central part of our lives in this upcoming year. And on that note, if you didn't get a Bible reading plan, we've got a couple still out on the, the table out in the front. You can grab one of those. There's two different versions of it. There's the green sheet that's a whole Bible in the whole year. I know it's January 4th, but you can catch up. And then there's the little yellow one, and it is uh, the New Testament in a year. And so I'd encourage you, if you are wired that way, to grab one of those and to, um, to make a commitment to making the Bible a central part of our lives. Hey, a couple other announcements before we get going. Um, restore, our, our monthly prayer time as a church is tomorrow, so we'll be at the point from the morning until uh, probably 5, 5.30 or 6 or so praying, and I realize that most of us work during the day, but I would encourage us to stop by or making it a habit to make the first Monday of every month a time when we, at least at our office, we sort of cease all administrative work and just open it up to settle our hearts on God renewing, restoring us as a body, praying for God. So even if you're not able to come, uh, I'd love for you to kind of set aside Mondays. The first Monday of the month is the day where you're praying that God would restore you and restore our church and help us, that he'd give us people, that he would give us souls, that he would make us the type of church that he wants us to be. So if you can, maybe during your lunch hour or whatever, swing by, we'll be at the office and just be praying. Nice some music playing in the background, and we'll just dedicate the day to prayer. So I'd love to have you. Also, before we get going... Um, one of our young ladies that has been with us, been with Jennifer and I, uh, before we even started Crosspoint at our Veritas Bible study that we led at Evangel Temple, a um, young lady named Lorna Rodriguez is joining the United States Army, and today is her last day with us for a while. She is reporting to this crazy little thing we like to call basic training, um, I think tomorrow. Is she driving up there today? She's going to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So Lorna, come on, I'm going to embarrass you. I know you, come on down here, girl, let's go. We've been hanging out for about 10 years now, and um, she doesn't like to be 
called out, but uh, I'm going to call her down here and uh, pray for her. She is um, one of my dear, dear friends for a long, long time, and she has, um, she's making a big step. She's going to join the United States Army and uh, serve us, and so I'm, I'm just very thankful for Lorna, for her life. Um, she, since we began Crosspoint, has been helping in so many ways, um, kids' ministry, donuts, sweeping, everything. She's just done a lot, so... Um, we're just thankful for you, Lorna, and um, take it easy on that drill sergeant. And, um, and so uh, let's do this. Let's just stretch out a hand and, and pray for Lorna. Lord, thank you for, for Lorna. Thank you for young people that uh, just care about something bigger than themselves, that care about the gospel, care about the church, care about friends, care about service. And Lord, I thank you that you have led Lorna to this point in her life where she is, is choosing to serve our nation. I pray, God, that you'd bless her. I know what it's like to be in this situation. I know that there's a lot of anxiety, and there's, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty and wondering whether or not you can measure up. But we know, God, that Lorna can and, in fact, will. And you, you are with her. She is your daughter. And I pray, God, that you not only give her the physical and emotional strength to navigate through the difficult waters of basic training and all of that well, but that you also, Lord, bless her so that she can be a light to people. And, Lord, as she goes, and in the lonely moments when, when it seems like you know, nothing's going her way, God, let her remember that there's friends, that there's brothers and sisters in the gospel, in the tribe, that are cheering her on, that are so proud of her, and that are praying for her. So, God, bless Lorna and use her in great ways for the sake of your name in the army. And thank you for her service. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Love you, girl. Give it up for Lorna. Yeah. Hey, we've also got a couple guys in here that um, are some young lieutenants that are stationed out at Fort Benning. And um, John, are, are you going to Ranger School tomorrow, or is that later for you? But is, is Nate Perswell here? Um, one of our... He's Nate's already at Ranger School. All right, there's a couple of our young guys that um, have been, they're lieutenants going through the um, officer basic course at Fort Benning, and after they graduate from that, they have to go to this little thing called Ranger School, and that's a difficult phase of training. And Nate Perswell, one of our young guys, is um, reporting to uh, Ranger School today, and there's a sign when you walk into Ranger School, and it says, not for the weak or faint-hearted, <laughs> and um, it stinks. I don't know what else to tell you, but it's three years of, uh, three months of misery, and so um, John's going to be going in a couple months, or about a couple weeks, and uh, Nate's there, so let's pray for him. One other thing before we get into the message today, um, a new family that's becoming a cross point, Michael and Robin Burt, Michael's right down here, uh, his wife, Robin, her sister, is a lady named Zena Rogers, and she's a nurse at the medical center, and um, she is, has developed uh, several rounds of cancer, has had cancer before, it's come back, and the reports just aren't really good for Zena, and Zena has spent her life caring for others and um, knows the Lord, is a wonderful lady, uh, but she, Zena is, is really in dire straits, and so Robin's with her now, and it's Michael asked that we would pray for her, and so we're going to pray for her right now, but also this week as you maybe go through your week, as Zena's mind comes to your, Zena's name comes to your mind, I'd love for you just to mention her, pray for her, and here's our prayer. Our prayer is that God would do something miraculous for his glory, but short of that, we pray that, that Zena and her family would sense his presence 
in the midst of this. And here's the good news. Zena knows the Lord, and, um, and she, is, she is at peace with God. But let's, let's pray for Zena and Robin, her sister, and Michael. Lord, thank you for, for this great family, for their, what you've done in their life, and for their heart for you. And I pray especially for Zena. I pray, God, although I don't know her personally, I've heard of her testimony and I know she loves you, and I know that her body is ravaged with this horrible disease. So God, would you, would you I, I pray that you'd bless her, I pray that you'd heal her, I pray that if that would be the most glorious thing for you to do for your namesake, that you would, that you would touch her, and that it would be a miraculous turnaround, and that you would get incredible glory through that. But God, whatever, whatever happens, I pray that you would minister to that family, let let whatever happens, whether, as Paul writes in the Philippian jail, whether he's in the Roman jail to the Philippians, whether he's well-fed or whether he's hungry, whether we are healed or whether we are not, God, we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So I pray that you would be glorified in this family and that you, you, they would sense your comfort. So bless Zena and this family, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, Acts chapter 2. Um, if you've been hanging around Crosspoint for a while, you know that this is one of those scriptures that we come back to a lot. And there are three words that I want to draw out of this, this scripture that I want to implant on our hearts. And these three words, I think, are going to be the rallying points for our vision in this upcoming year. And um, these three words very directly, which we'll go over, we'll draw out of the scripture, gospel, community, and mission. And I think kind of everything that we're doing here falls under those three words, gospel, community, and mission. So let's read, and then we're going to, uh, I think we're probably going to read a lot of scripture today, and uh, then we're going to receive communion together as a church. And so we're not in a rush, and what I have to say certainly is not the focus of today, but what, what God would speak to us through his spirit out of this word. And so um, let's, let's um, kind of exhale and, uh, and open up our Bibles and, and listen to what God would, would say to us. Well, let me pray before we do that. Lord, as we open up your Bible, thank you for this new year. Thank you for new beginnings. Thank you, as Reynolds said, that we can shake the Etch-A-Sketch. And uh, that you, you make all things new and, and you give us encouragement and hope. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, communicate through me. I am certainly a crooked stick, but you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. So I pray that I would faithfully preach your truth, that the high point of what we're doing today would not be any clever words from a man, but that you would very specifically speak to each of your your children here today through your spirit and that you'd give us a hope and an encouragement for what lies ahead for us so that we might be a church that glorifies God, not ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 2 is where we are. What's happened here is, is obviously Jesus has, this is the first book of the Bible after the Gospels, and Jesus has lived on the earth for 33 years. He has performed more miracles than we can even record in a book. John says at the end of John that there, there's, if you were to record everything that Jesus did, there would not be room in the world to contain all of the things that he did. He lived a perfect, completely righteous, sinless life, and he then willingly laid down his life on the cross, died on the cross. God himself died 
rose again, then spends 40 days on earth, appearing to over 500 people, tells his disciples to go to Jerusalem and now wait for this empowerment of his presence, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's the day of Pentecost, and they go and they assemble there, and these 120 people are gathered in this room, and the Spirit of God is poured out on the earth in a new and powerful way, fills the believers, and that is the birth of the New Testament church. And then this one disciple in particular named Peter, who, oh, by the way, is the same guy who was afraid to confess who Jesus was before this little servant girl around a fire the night before his crucifixion, now is empowered and emboldened with the presence of the Holy Spirit living in him to stand up and preach an amazing sermon. And it's a, it's a hard sermon. I mean, it is, it, is, it is to the point, you need to repent, give your life to Christ, that's it. And then from that, there is this formation of this early church. And we get this picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And this is, this is the scripture that we're going to base our time off of and then, and then skip around from there. Acts 2, 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Now, um, at this time, there, there was not what we know of as the New Testament. It had not been written yet. Of course, there was the Old Testament the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, but there had not yet been even written. This is just days after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And so what we have is the eyewitness oral testimony of these early disciples, these 12 men minus Judas, and then they add another one in Acts chapter 1. So it's these 12 men. It's their it's just their testimony. They're getting up and saying, this is what Jesus did among us. And that's the apostles' teaching. Now, over the course of time, it began to be transmitted into written form. And that's where we get our 27 books of the New Testament. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm going to talk about that next week when we talk about how we got the Bible. But the apostles are teaching, this is what they're teaching, this is what the church is centering themselves on and devoting themselves to. They're centering themselves on the apostles' teaching, which is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. So the first word that, that we need to be about as a church and in this upcoming year is for us is the gospel, and I want you to go to First uh, Corinthians. If you if you flip to your right a little bit, First Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians fifteen. It's Acts, Romans, then First Corinthians fifteen, and this is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. It talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and this is what the Apostle Paul, who then becomes an apostle later on in the Book of Acts, and now is writing a letter back to this church in Corinth that he started. And he talks about the gospel very specifically here. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, meaning the good news, of the, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let me stop there and say, um, there is... A, a large, to a large degree, a misunderstanding of what the gospel is in church, especially, I think, in America, especially in the Bible Belt. We've, we've, kind, of, um, we've kind of got inoculated to the gospel because we sort of grow up in a world where 
uh, that everybody sort of assumes that you know the gospel, that we know what it is. And so generally in our culture, your average person on the street would think that the gospel is this little piece of news that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and so that we could be in heaven with him forever. And, and certainly that's part of the gospel. But when we just say, well, that's the gospel and all you need to do is know that and sort of agree with that, then you buy into this, this fallacy that just knowing that little piece of information and sort of agreeing with it is, in fact, Christianity. And it's, it's not. The gospel is, is more than just this little piece of news. It is this... It is first and foremost this proclamation that God is renewing and rescuing all things. The gospel is the good news that the world has been divided in half and that God solved the problem that humanity from the beginning of time could never solve and now he himself takes upon our sin, lives a perfect life, dies on a cross, and rises or raises, I can never figure out the tense of that, comes back from the dead, and now doesn't just offer the opportunity for eternity, but comes to renew and restore all things in our life. And then he, in fact, calls, invites, commands all people to respond to him and then to line up their lives in accordance with the great and glorious truth of his resurrection. The gospel is all-consuming. The, the cultural, nominal Christianity that we see by and large in America, that is not the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that matters in the entire universe that we, the created, respond to the redemptive love of the creator and we give our lives in response to him. That's the gospel. And, and we, as a church, must understand that it's more than just, oh, it's the time like during the altar call or it's, it's the salvation message. No, it's the life message. The gospel is Everything, it's central. It's, it's not something that just makes you a Christian and then you move on to the other stuff and you kind of live life and you start making good, moral, practical decisions. No, the gospel, it says here, Paul says that you were saved by it and now you're standing in it and for the rest of your life you are continually being saved by it. It's, it's, it's an all-consuming from beginning to end event. This, the gospel is life. Did my microphone just go off? Okay, good, good. It sounds like it went off. Maybe I'm just talking so loud you guys are. Right. So let's go on in verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So what Paul is saying here is the gospel which you received and were saved in, and now what you are standing in, even if you've been a Christian for 15, 20, 30, 40, 60 years, and you're still continually being saved in, is this great and glorious news that God once and for all has taken care 
of the thing that was against us, our own flesh that we could never get right, the enemy, the devil that wants to destroy us, and death with which we have no answer for as humans by ourselves. Now he has come and he has rescued us from this. It is not just the piece of news that makes you enter into Christianity. It is the piece of news that saves you and sanctifies you and transforms you for the rest of your life. And then ultimately is this great and glorious ending to where we go and see Jesus and we stand face to face with him. The gospel is everything. The gospel is everything. The gospel is our salvation. It's our sanctification. It's our glorification. It's our struggle. It's, it's the moment I receive Christ. It's 10 years after. It is 60 years after. It is, it is how I treat my wife. It is how I spend my money. It is how I raise my children. It is what I think about when it's just me and my... It is everything. Everything. The gospel is everything. And we're, we're a community that, that must be about the only thing that really, really, really matters. That's why, by the way, we talk about the gospel all the time here. Um, about a year and a half into the church, somebody that doesn't come here anymore, um, maybe for this reason, said, Brad, I, you know, I like your preaching, but it seems like all you ever talk about is the gospel. I mean, it's just like, like three out of four Sundays, all you talk about is the gospel. And I'm like, you're right. I am sorry. I am so sorry. I will do my best to make it four out of four Sundays instead of just three. I repent to you for only three out of four Sundays. Haven't seen them since. The world, the gospel divides the world into, and this is what you need to know if you're here today for the first time or you have, it's just, maybe you've been here for a long time but you don't know this, is that the gospel is not optional. It divides the world into, Jesus says something very, very clear, and see, this, this is my heart, man, this is, for this world that we live in, especially in Christian America, I imagine if you polled all of the people in our country that would call themselves Christian and you would say to them, is the way of Christ, is Christianity exclusive? I mean, do you, do you have to respond to this? Is this, I mean, is there any way other to heaven? And I, I saw a preacher on a talk show on national TV who couldn't, who just didn't have the mm, to say, yes, Jesus is the only way. But Jesus says it very specifically. He says in John 14, 6, he says that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know what that means? It means that Christianity is not a moral message. It's not an ethic. It's not just another way. It is a person who is the only way back to our creator. It's the, the gospel is not optional. It's not just Western civilization. It, it's not capitalism. It's not moral living. It is the good news that God saves sinners. That's what the gospel is. Then the apostle Peter says again and the same thing that Jesus says in Acts 4.12. He says that, that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. And if you're a Christian and you have not come to grips with the fact that Jesus is the only way, and that that, in fact, is something that we must be compelled to tell the world, then, then you need to settle on that fact that Christ is the only way. And, he, and here's something else I love about the gospel, and this, I hope, will be an encouragement to you. Go to 1 Corinthians, or I know we're in 1 Corinthians 15. Just go to, over to the left of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because here's another enemy of the gospel in our culture. Okay, we tend to divide our culture up into church people and sort of, you know, all the, the heathens, everybody else, right? And so we're all good little Baptists and Methodists or Pentecostals or 
Presbyterians or whatever you are, I, I just call myself kind of a Jesus-loving Protestant mutt. That's what I am. But, 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 but in our culture, especially in our region, see, the world's kind of divided up into people that sort of are in this camp called growing up in Christianity and everybody else, right? And so, you know, we get the bulletins, we get the mail-outs, we go to the Christmas musicals, we, we do the Easter production. I'm sorry, don't get me started on that. But then there's everybody else, right? And so there's this Christian culture and this non-Christian culture. And, that's, that, that's, and what it does is it, it just kind of creates this nominal, weak church people and then everybody else. But this, I love this scripture. I hope this will be an encouragement to somebody in here. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, do you, and this is the seriousness of the message of Christ. It says, listen to this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Look, it matters how you live, man. You cannot be a good church kid, accept Christ, at least thinking you're accepting Christ, and then go do whatever you want. You can't do it. Uh, it, it, it doesn't work that way. I'm not saying that we we're, we're, have to live lives of perfection, but if you're a college kid and you say you love Jesus and you're sleeping with your girlfriend and you're getting hammered on Friday nights, the Bible is against you. And, and I, would, I would very much doubt your salvation. And somebody says, Brad, is, it, is that a good thing for you to cause somebody to question their salvation? Yes! If you're saying one thing and doing, if I'm saying one thing and doing another, it, Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourself lest you be in the faith. And so we're not playing tiddlywinks here. The gospel is everything. It's not like we can just, we can, we just have this God who's dying for us to come to him, wringing his hands in heaven saying, oh, I hope these people will accept me and I'm going to die for them and then they can just accept me and do whatever they want. That's not the game. That's not the way it works. We have been bought with a price. And so our lives, after we receive the gospel, if we truly receive the gospel, then becomes this struggle and strain and this glorious process of responding to God with our whole lives. So let's keep reading. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, I'm not trying to beat us up and make us, uh, uh, you know, feel bad. I'm just saying that you have to know that God is very serious about what his children do. And then he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, that was me, okay, I'm talking about me, nor idolaters, that was me, and I still got some of that, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, sexu homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, I, I really don't know what the word revile means, but I'm sure I've done it, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? The, the, God is serious about salvation. And then this is the sweetest verse. It says in verse 11, And such were some of you. So the church should not be made up of good little church kids that look through our stained glass windows to all of the revilers. The church is a group of pardoned rebels who once were revilers, in fact, are maybe still struggling with reviling, who are in the process of being saved and making the gospel the great and glorious truth to a lost world, that God saves revilers. That's, that's beautiful. So it, it, is, 
It, it saves to the uttermost no matter how lost you are. And it is the only truth that matters. It is the only message we have. It is the only thing that we talk about. Yes, there are issues of sanctification. Yes, there are issues of Christian growth. But do you see that all of that is the gospel? It's not just a piece of news that you transact with God and then go about your life. It's the piece of news that then absorbs you, consumes you, and then you spend the rest of your life being transformed by. That's the gospel. And we must continue to recalibrate, reorient, and reaffirm our commitment to the gospel. And if you are here today and you have never responded to the gospel, I don't care if you have spent your whole life going to church. I don't care if you know the Bible cover to cover. If you have never responded to the gospel, and by that I mean you have turned away from self-reliance and sin, and you have turned to faith in what Christ did on the cross, the most loving thing I can tell you today is that you must respond to that. And if you do not respond to that, and if you die without having responding to that, there awaits a punishment for you that is worse than anything I can describe. And that's the most loving thing I can say to you today. Respond to the gospel. Don't let church culture get in the way of you responding to the gospel. Don't let social embarrassment get in the way of you responding to the gospel. I don't care if you've been here forever. Respond to Christ. And you responding to Christ is two things. It's turning away from sin. Remember that list of stuff that we read? And don't act like, oh, I am totally unfamiliar with that sexual immorality, idolatry. Who could that be? Us. <laughs> so don't act like, you know, that's us. That's, that's people. We're broken. And, and at, the, at the heart of everything is idolatry, man. We put ourselves on the throne. So even if you're like, you're like whew, no sexual immorality here, uh, no thievery here, no, no, then at the core, all of us are idolaters before we come to God. And idolatry is not worshiping some little golden statue of Buddha. Idolatry is putting ourselves on the throne and making our world about us. That, you need to be rescued from that. You need to be saved from that. And so you, you've got to turn from that. You've got to turn from sin and trust Christ as the only name given under heaven by which you can trust for for your salvation. And you can do that today. In just a little while, we're going to respond in communion, and you can receive Christ today. You must do that. The second word after gospel is community. Let's keep going back. Go back to Acts chapter 2, and let's keep reading. And these next two will be quicker. Acts 2, verse 42. Remember, we started off on that, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So what the apostles were teaching was the gospel. They were not teaching how to win friends and influence people. They were teaching the great and glorious and hard and exclusive and specific news of Christ risen. That's what they were preaching. And then verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all 
as any had need. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and sincere, glad and generous hearts. The second word after gospel is that we, I think, need to focus on this year is community. Because here's, the, here's how the good news gets even better, is that God doesn't just do his work in us individually. He calls us, he saves us, he rescues us. He takes revilers and makes them worshipers in progress. And then he brings them into a community of people called the church. Listen to me, this is very important. It is, it is look, the church needs a lot of work. This church needs a lot of work. There are things about this church that I do not like, and I am the only pastor this church has ever had. So I have nobody to blame. But my, I mean, it, the church is a messy conglomeration of pardoned rebels, revilers, who are dealing with their salvation. But it is this beautiful thing called the body of Christ. And here's, here's what I want you to listen to. This is especially true for young people who don't even want to commit. I mean, getting young people to commit to anything is like pulling teeth. Commit to the body of Christ. And how do you do that? By committing to a local expression of the body of Christ and making doing life with that group of people central to your living out of the gospel. It is impossible, I think, to be a vital, healthy Christian who is living out the gospel. Remember what Paul said, you were saved in it, you stand in it now, and you're being saved in it. That is not an individual sport. It is impossible to make the gospel transcendent and preeminent in your life unless you have a group of people to do it with. It's just impossible. But what pushes us away is we're critical of the church. We're, look, church, churches are difficult, messy things, but they are the bride of Christ. Be generous in your assessment of the church, whether it be this one or any other. That's why I never criticize the church. Look, other people, even in the city, do church far differently than I would do church, but they are the church. On December 17th, 1994, I married my bride. And I think she's an amazingly beautiful woman. But certainly, I mean, just like... I've got flaws, she's got flaws, we've all got issues. And as she walked down that middle aisle of the church in her dress, can you imagine if somebody sitting in the church that day as Jennifer was walking down the aisle to come stand before me, if they would have said, that dress doesn't look good. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine that? Or like, I can't believe she chose to wear her hair like that, right? Can you, believe, can you imagine if somebody did that? You know what would happen? You know what would have happened? I would have exited my place right there standing by my best man and the preacher, and I would have, I would have climbed over the pew, and I, I, we would have gone operation <laughs> beat down on you, Right? Hey, you may have taken me out afterwards, but I'd have got in a few licks, no doubt. I'd have taken a tooth out at least, even if it was as bad. I would have, bam, I'd have, done, I'd have done some cannibal. I'd have something. Because that's, that's my bride. 
And like no other bride, like every other bride, she's not perfect, but she's my bride. The church is not perfect. But as laborers for God, we, too many Christians just sort of sit by and say, she doesn't look good in a dress. No. So let's get to work on mending her dress. On working on the bride so that she's ready for the bridegroom. Check this out. Go to Romans chapter 12. I love this scripture. Romans chapter 12. Verse 9. Again, this is one of those scriptures we come back to again and again. And if you've been around, you've heard me preach on this a lot. Romans 12. Um, it's right after Acts. Acts and Romans. Romans 12, verse 9. Boy, what... Uh, you know, people... like There's this thing in pastor culture where we define success by everything but biblical standards. And I would love to... Um, this is what I think about when I think about whether or not this church is successful, whether or not we're being what we're called to be, not by how many people come, not by how many flashing things we got, not by how, many, how much stuff we can put on a website or what we can print off, but, but whether or not we're a group of people that, that are struggling and straining to live up to this. Romans 12, verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And, and this verse is talking to a people in the community. So what if a group of people decided to do this together, to let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good? It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What a powerful verse. What if, what if the group of people that called Crosspoint Home just decided, I'm going to live, I'm going to work out my salvation in the context of a community, and I'm just going to make this verse my battle cry to outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The church in America, by and large, functions for the sake of consumerism. We want to, and I think it has to do with the egos of pastors, and I do not count myself apart from this. I struggle with this all the time. Remember, I am a reforming idolater. I still battle with wanting to be successful, wanting people to come, wanting it to be about me, and that reveals my sinful heart. And what we do when we give into that urge is we, we create church culture that is merely to be consumed so that people will come and, and, and consume the stuff that we can produce so that we can feel good about ourselves. And that is, that is not Christian community. We're called to be people who then contribute. And can I just be honest with you? We, I'm talking about Crosspoint. I'm talking about the church in large. We're just, we're really, we're not good at this about helping people. And so I'm kind of offering, I'm throwing out a plea here. Help us, help me, help one another contribute. And one of the, I mean, we define ministry by whether or not you can get up in front of people and talk or sing like Garrett did or just pass out some bulletins or watch kids. Look, look, ministry, blessing people is far more than just this hour and a half that we have here. But can we as a church take community so seriously that everybody that calls Crosspoint home would go home and just say, hey, I, how can I contribute? How can I be part of something far bigger than myself? How can I just 
live out Romans 12, 9 through 13? How can I do that? Ask God that question. And I think the answers that we get from that would be, would be amazing. The third word, and this is the final word, is that it calls us into mission. So back to Acts chapter 2 real quick. Remember the gospel community, and then verse 47. They've gotten together. They've centered themselves on the apostles' teaching. It has called them into a community of people. And then this is what happens in verse 47. One word, and then we'll be done. It says, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The third word that I want to stick in our hearts and in our minds today is mission. The gospel saves us. It calls us into a community and then it puts us on mission. We do not exist primarily for ourselves. We do not exist to get together on Sunday mornings or in LifePoint groups and entertain one another. We exist to be people that glorify God by advancing his kingdom. Let me read this to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And after this verse, we will be done and receive communion together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is the Paul the Apostle Paul talking about the mission that God has set him on as a former reviler, murderer, idolatry, idolater, and now God has him on this mission that I think is the same mission that we are on as a church. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says this. And this is a very, very important, a very, very important verse for a church that's seeking to be a New Testament church that is living about something more than just a sermon and some music and flowers. All right, this is huge. This is, this is what we're doing here. It says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. In other words, my Christianity is not now primarily about myself and being comfortable and living some good, happy, distant successful life. It's about now me being poured out and being used by God to win more people to Christ. Verse 20, he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now, Paul is a Jew. And he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. In other words, the Gentiles. So when I was around Jewish people, I, I didn't do anything that would cause them to stumble, but I got into their culture and I preached Jesus to them. I didn't let them morph me, but I contextualized the gospel and I preached Christ. I met them where they were. I didn't expect them to come to me, but I met them where they were and I presented Christ to them in a context that they could understand. But when I was with the Gentiles or the Greeks and it wouldn't be profitable for me to wear the yarmulke, I, I, is that what it is? I don't even know if they had them back then, but I preached the gospel to the Gentiles. He took this so far that he had two he had many, but two of the young men that he trained up in ministry as his assistants, one of them was of Jewish heritage named Timothy, and the other was of Greek heritage named Titus. And to Timothy, he says, Holmes, you got to get circumcised because it would be most profitable for you in this context to be sent to the Jews. And to Titus, he says, you don't have to do it because you're going to go to the Gentiles. Can you imagine the little ministry meeting there between Timothy, Titus, and Paul? And he's like... Timothy, bro, take one for the team. <laughs> for the sake of the gospel, 
I'll do whatever it takes to make this world and my salvation not about me. What would a church look like if we, oh, if this was our heartbeat? He, he goes on and he says, verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Can I just confess that this verse, that my heart generally is nowhere near this verse. Can I just confess that to you? And by and large, my heart in this upcoming year needs to grow in compassion because if I truly believe what I preach, then I think my life would begin to look a little bit more passionate about it in my, in my efforts to be all things to all people. Here's this phrase that I want to burn on your hearts. We must be a church that doesn't compromise the gospel because I think that this verse, is, there's a tension in this verse. You know what, we can, some people can read that and say, oh, well, do whatever it takes and, you know, let's... Let's start playing wacky music and, you know, have cake parties on Friday and, you know, just get everybody to come around and do our thing and, you know, just totally compromise the gospel. Or we can contextualize the gospel. And I think that's what this verse calls us to. To take the message that we have been saved by, that we are standing in, that we are now being saved by, and then take it into a world. Primarily, we live in a very religious society. So our challenge in this upcoming year is how, how are we going to contextualize the gospel for a culture that by and large thinks it's saved but isn't? How are we going to do that? And I pray that God would give us great wisdom. I think it is by calling people to respond, to repent, to truly give their lives to Christ, not just be church attenders. But we need to be people that contextualize, that bring... Christ and make him plain within a culture that has so many obstacles, not people that compromise the gospel, but contextualize it so that we might win some. Well, those three words are on my heart this upcoming year, and I pray that they would be on your heart as well, that we would be people of the gospel, that we would be people of community, and that we would be people on mission. And listen, those things are not easy. They're not easy. Let me read one final scripture, and then we're going to receive communion together. Acts chapter 20. And I want to read this scripture because I want to remind us that if we think that we can just sort of roll out some cool kids playing the guitar and dress down and preach and have kind of a cool vibe, and if we think that's all there is to it, I want this verse to remind us that we're fooling ourselves. This verse speaks to the absolute warfare that we are engaged in here as a church. It says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, it says, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And this is the apostle Paul now speaking kind of like his farewell message to these Ephesian elders, this church that he planted. And he's gathering them together, telling them that he's got to leave and he's not going to see them again. And he's warning them about this battle that they're going to be facing in, in this church planting effort that they're doing, in this spreading of the gospel, the very same thing that we're trying to do here in this culture. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. Listen, um, if you're going to really preach the scriptures, there will be pressure socially to shrink from it. There will be pressure socially to shrink from the gospel. I give you as exhibit A this hullabaloo over Rick Warren, who, by the way, is, I think, one of the most non-controversial Bible-preaching pastors in the country, and, and he is now doing the inauguration at President Obama's, um, he's doing the prayer at the inauguration, and because he has a just a, a very, very um, uh, clearly biblical stance on homosexuality, they act like this guy is a raving lunatic. <laughs> well, have they, I mean, th- this is just, this is just, this isn't even up for debate. It's not even, it's not like he's out on some, he's so, some radical stance. This is just down the middle of the road Christianity, and the world is opposed to it. And so do you think that we can be a church in a culture that thinks it's saved, that's not calling people to repentance, and everybody will hold hands with us and sing kumbaya and light candles? We're crazy if we think that's going to happen. And do you think that that's going to happen, you can build a church and that people are going to be happy and get along? No, it doesn't happen that way. The church is a beautiful mess. The kingdom advancing mission that he's called us to is war. It's war. Let's keep reading. I did not shrink from you from declaring it. I didn't just tell you stuff that you wanted to hear. I preached the gospel. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Where have you heard that before? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Verse 22, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I love that. I love that. Here's this preacher saying, I don't know what's going to happen, except I'm going to get beat up and thrown in prison. Praise be to Jesus. I'm going. But what does it say about our age that we only define success by the lack of opposition? Haven't we maybe inverted that sort of some way? I mean, if, I think if you're truly preaching the gospel, there will be some opposition even from within, you know? I mean, hey, my, my New Year's resolution, what, what, what would you do if I got up and said, my New Year's resolution this year is to be thrown in prison? I mean, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Can you imagine a man who's been so apprehended and seized by grace that he doesn't even count his life as important to him? He's like, I don't care. Who cares? I mean, he writes to the Philippians when he's in prison later on, and he goes and actually, what he said actually happens, and he writes back to them, and he says, hey, if I die, it'll be, it'll, I'll be with Christ, it'll be better. I mean, I am not there. So I'm not saying this is a condemning thing, like, you need to get there because I'm not there. I read this, and I'm amazingly convicted by it because I am a primarily a comfortable, um, relatively reluctant preacher on the grand scope of things. And I pray that my life would be consumed with the gospel and community and mission in a more um, Paul-saturated, scripture-exalting sort of way. Verse 25, and now, God-saturated, Paul-like sort of way. Verse 25, and now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I didn't give you cute stuff. I preached Jesus to you and that you must respond to him. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In other words, you've been bought with a price, man. This life, it wasn't so you could come and have cool stuff. It was Jesus bought you with a price, church, cross point, and now your life is not about your comfort or programs or your convenience or pattern chairs or, 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 or lights. And it is about you giving your life, about me giving our life away for the sake of the gospel. Is, does that not run countercultural to how we do church in America? It does. And he says, I know that after, this is so important, I know that after my departure, fierce Wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. In other words, there are wolves out there that want to destroy us. And over the course of the history of our church, maybe even in this upcoming years, there will be wolves that will come in here and try and divert us, take us down, try and trip me up, trip you up. And here's my responsibility to you, is that the church, I believe, is made up of three types of people. There's the sheep, who I think most of us are, and you need to be cared for and protected and encouraged and exhorted and you need the gospel preached to you. I need the, I'm a street. We need the gospel preached to us. We need to be cared for, protected. And then there are goats among us. Jesus says that the, when he comes back, he's going to divide the sheep up from the goats. There will be people that have been hanging around Christians all their life, that look like Christians, that talk like Christians, that, that seem to be Christians, but in the end it will be revealed that they're not. So we've got sheep. We need to, they're Christians, we need to care for them. We've got goats, and I need to preach to those goats. We need to preach to those goats in hopes that they would turn from their self-reliance and become sheep. And then we have wolves among us, and wolves need to be shot. Sheep need to be protected. Goats need to be confronted. Wolves need to be shot. And we as a people need to be serious about what we're doing. This is not about us. It's about the gospel. It's about God calling us into a community and about being a people on mission. Well, we're going to receive communion together. Before I do that, let me pray. Lord, as we, as we pause before we gather around this table and before we reflect and remember what Jesus did for us, I pray that you would uncomplicate our hearts and settle us on the good news of Christ the good news of the gospel we live in such a religious world that we've almost become inoculated to the force of that and as a result there are people in this room who probably think they've responded to you but all they've really done is gone to church if there's anybody like that in here today, God, would you, would you help them do two things? Would you help them turn from their sin, turn from idolatry, turn from revelry, turn from self-reliance, turn from, turn from sin, and then turn towards you in faith and trust? doesn't mean they're perfect. doesn't mean that tomorrow is going to be completely sin-free. It just means that this great and glorious salvation has come into their hearts and they are now bought with a price and their life is not their own. 
God, when I think about the gospel, when I try and preach about the gospel, I feel like I do such an inadequate job of explaining it because we have so muted it, we've neutered it, we have inoculated ourselves to it in this gospel, and we live such good and comfortable lives that we don't really feel like we need to be saved. So God, would you, would you, would you wrestle us out of our comfort and out of our self-reliance and out of the doldrums, and would you, would you shake us to realize that we either need to be saved or that when we were saved, it was far greater news than we could ever imagine. God, would you do that? Would you, would you somehow magnify the good news? Would you make the gospel far more profound in my life than it, than it is right now? God, would, would, I, would I just realize how great and glorious it is far beyond I have up to this point? And would it cause worship to swell up in my heart? Would it, would it propel me to live my life in response to you? And if there's anybody in here, God, that has not done that, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you do what only you could do and draw them to you so that they would turn from their sin and turn towards you in faith and trust and be born again and be saved? And if that's you, all you need to do is just in your own words say, God, I turn from self-reliance. I turn from sin. I turn from self-absorption, and I trust only in you, Jesus. You are the only way. Come now. Come into my heart and my life and save me and rescue me. Just do that. Do that. Say that prayer in your own words, in your own breath, with your own tongue. And the Bible says that when you do that, when you believe that, when you trust in that, you will be saved. And you will begin this process of receiving the gospel, becoming a Christian. And God, for those of us that um, have already done that, God, again, magnify it in our hearts. Show us what it is to be a community and make us a church on mission. Make us a church on mission. I pray that we would not get comfortable. I pray that we would not get satisfied and content. And I pray that we would not get lazy. And I realize that a great bit of that responsibility lies on me. And so, God, I pray that you'd give me wisdom and energy. And I pray that you would help me to be selfless and be willing to do, as Paul said, to lay down my life for the gospel so that it's not about me, but it is all about you. Lord, we live in a culture that is lost and dying, and they need Jesus. And if we truly know him, then we are like that farmer who found the pearl and the treasure hidden in his field. God, let us sell everything. Let us sell everything for that, the sake of that treasure and help us be people on mission. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's do this. Let's all, all stand, if we would.